Well, as we approach uh, the sermon now, um, I'm going to offer a prayer uh, for the illumination of God. Um, and uh, for this prayer, I'm going to use the, the words um, of uh, one of the reformers, Martin Butzer. So if you would um, bow with me. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith so that we may rightly discern your gracious will cherish it and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor through our lord jesus christ amen well last week we kicked off a series in the book of first timothy and we kicked it off with an overview of the whole letter. And we saw uh, in that that 1 Timothy is all about doctrine and devotion for the church and the Christian. Paul wrote about doctrine because he wanted Timothy to correct those who taught different doctrine, but also to contend for sound doctrine. He wrote about devotion because right doctrine always leads to right living. And he wrote about doctrine and devotion, uh, primarily lived out within the context of a local church in terms of pastors, deacons, and the life of a whole congregation. But Paul also wrote about how doctrine and devotion are lived out in the life of individual Christians. So doctrine and devotion for the church and the Christian. As I've been approaching this series in 1 Timothy, I've been excited, and I've been excited for a number of reasons. One of the reasons I've been excited is that this series is going to be a, a bit of a, a change of pace for, uh, compared to where we've been. Um, you know, especially in Revelation and Esther, uh, I was usually preaching large sections, sometimes two or three chapters at once. And it was great, uh, but, it, but it was a lot at times. And uh, with 1 Timothy, instead of preaching like two chapters at once, often going to be just preaching two verses at once. And honestly, even that is going to be too much at times. Uh, in fact, as I planned this first sermon in the text of 1 Timothy, I thought I would preach the first two verses of this book. And you might be thinking, how could you possibly preach a whole sermon on two verses? But actually, as I was studying and preparing, I discovered there's too much in these first two verses to fit into just one sermon. What we're going to see is that these opening verses are much more than just the names on the envelope of a letter. These first two verses are actually the foundation of the whole letter of 1 Timothy. And if we don't read these first two verses correctly, we lose all of 1 Timothy. So I'm actually going to preach 1 Timothy 1 and 2 as a two-part sermon. And uh, that being said, we've got a lot to get to. So let's begin by reading 1 Timothy 1, 1 and 2 together. And since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of Jesus Christ himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? 
Paul, carried along by the Holy Spirit, writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Have you ever gotten an email that looked legitimate until you looked a little closer? Uh, maybe it said, it maybe had the Google logo at the top. And it said something really compelling like, the security of your account has been compromised. Please click this link to log in and change your password. But then you look up at the email address of the sender, and it's not something official like security at google.com. It's more like user-help687 at googlemailbox.net, and Google is spelled with two zeros instead of O's. And you realize, wait a second, I don't need to take this message seriously because it's not from a trusted source. For some of you, that might be the most helpful thing you got out of the sermon today, by the way. Anyway, <laughs> you need to know if you don't. You send that to the spam folder, okay? When you get a message from an untrustworthy source, you do not want to receive what they're trying to give you. On the other hand, when the source is trustworthy, and the source gives you a message, it's important that you do receive what's coming to you. So uh, Alyssa and I are part of a, a healthcare sharing plan that reimburses us for large medical expenses. And when each of our boys were born, we paid the full cost of the delivery up front, but then eventually got a reimbursement check in the mail for the, for the entire cost. And when that check finally came in the mail, you had better believe that I was ready to receive what they wanted to give me. And I saw, I looked, and I saw the official letterhead of the, of the organization. I saw the official check stock. I saw their bank and routing numbers on the check. I, I knew it was valid, and I was eager to receive what this trusted source wanted to give us. Well, here in front of us, is the message of 1 Timothy. And what we have in these first two verses of 1 Timothy are a statement about the source of this message and the nature of this message. And based on these two verses, we have to decide, is this a source I am willing to trust? We have to decide Am I going to receive this message? We have to decide, am I going to embrace what is being offered to me? Ultimately, what we see in these verses is that God has a message that he wants to give us. And so here's the main thing I want you to hear in this sermon and this week and next week. Receive. The message that God 
wants to give you. Receive the message that God wants to give you. I want us to see three attributes of this message, the message of 1 Timothy. I want us to see three attributes in these two verses. And each of these three attributes is a reason that we ought to receive the message of 1 Timothy. Now, we're, we're just going to look at one attribute today. Uh, we'll look at the other two next week. But the first attribute that I want us to see about this message is that 1 Timothy is a message by God's authority. A message by God's authority. The very first word of 1 Timothy is the word Paul. In its very first word, this letter claims to be written by the man who was formerly known as Saul, a Pharisee who persecuted the church. Uh, the man whom the, the, the resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to on the road to Damascus. The man whom Jesus called to be his chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The text of 1 Timothy claims that this Paul is the author of 1 Timothy. Paul is identified here in this first verse as an apostle of Christ Jesus. The apostles of Christ Jesus were men appointed by Jesus to be his authorized representatives. They were witnesses of the resurrected Christ. They received revelation directly from Christ. And their legitimacy as apostles was validated by signs and wonders and miracles. Jesus gave the apostles authority within the church. A major way they carried out this authority was by giving authoritative teaching. In the book of Acts, we see how they taught verbally among the disciples of Jesus, uh, but they also wrote God-breathed scripture, which we have today in the New Testament. Ephesians 2.20 says that the apostles, along with the prophets, are, are the foundation of the church. So this office of apostle is vitally important for the church and the opening words of 1 Timothy clearly identify the author of this letter as the Apostle Paul. An authoritative voice that the readers of this letter ought to listen to. But, despite the fact that this letter claims to be written by the Apostle Paul, there are many who believe Paul did not write 1 Timothy. In fact, if you look at the wide world of scholarship today, uh, liberal, conservative, Catholic, Protestant, believers, unbelievers, and seminaries and state schools, all those who would be considered Bible scholars, the majority of scholars would argue that Paul did not write 1 Timothy or the other pastoral epistles, 2 Timothy and Titus. So what do we make of that? Well, first we need to realize that this is a recent development. For nearly 1,800 years of church history, virtually everybody agreed that Paul wrote the pastoral epistles. 
But then in the early 1800s, a very influential liberal German scholar named Friedrich Schleiermacher began to argue that Paul was not actually the, the, uh, the author of the pastoral epistles. And what started with Schleiermacher in the early 1800s ultimately became widely accepted to the point that, again, today, the majority of scholars have adopted the same position that Paul did not write the pastoral epistles. Those who hold to this position uh, believe that the pastorals were written uh, many years after Paul's death and that whoever wrote them attached Paul's name to them. So, why would someone argue that Paul did not write the pastoral epistles? Well, let me give four, the, the four main reasons that uh, these scholars give, and I'll explain why these arguments are unconvincing. You know, First Timothy, so much of it has to do with addressing false doctrine. And so in the spirit of 1 Timothy, I think it's vitally important for me to address the false teaching that is out there on the uh, idea that Paul did not write the pastoral epistles. Well, the first reason has to do with history. The claim is that the events described in the pastoral epistles don't line up with the events described in the book of Acts. In several places in the pastoral epistles, Paul describes his circumstances. In 1 Timothy 1.3, he says he was traveling to Macedonia and told Timothy to remain in Ephesus. In Titus 1.5, he says he left Titus in Crete to put the churches in order. And in 2 Timothy, Paul describes being in prison in Rome as he's writing. And it's clear that Paul believed he was near death. So he describes his circumstances in these pastoral epistles. Well, then you look over at the book of Acts, which also describes Paul's circumstances. And Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome. Now, Acts doesn't describe Paul's death, uh, but many assume that the imprisonment described in 2 Timothy is the same imprisonment at the end of Acts. And the problem is, Paul's travels to Macedonia and Ephesus and Crete that are in the pastoral epistles don't really fit into the events described in Acts. So the claim is that since these accounts don't line up, the pastorals must not have been written by the real Paul. But that claim only works if we assume that the imprisonment in 2 Timothy is the same imprisonment in Acts. Again, Acts doesn't record Paul's death. And not only that, if you read the context of Paul's imprisonment in Acts, it would be quite a crazy twist if that imprisonment ended with Paul being executed. Every Roman official that Paul encountered believed Paul was innocent. No one thought he deserved the death penalty. The only reason Paul even ended up in Rome and wasn't released earlier is because he himself asked to make his own case before Caesar. And so while, while we can't say for sure, what seems most likely is that the imprisonment described in Acts ended in Paul being released from prison. And that then he continued traveling and ministering, as recorded in the pastoral epistles, and that he eventually was imprisoned in Rome again, as recorded in 2 Timothy, and was executed at that time. So that argument from history is ultimately unconvincing. 
The second reason people doubt that Paul wrote the pastorals has to do with the way that the pastorals describe how churches, uh, particularly church leadership, was structured. So the pastoral epistles describe churches with pastors and deacons. And those who question Paul's authorship also argue that since Timothy and Titus were overseeing the pastors of the churches, um, that the, the author of the pastorals meant to describe these men as serving in the formal office of bishop uh, over pastors. But these, um, th- those who, who doubt Paul's authorship claim that, well, the, the churches in Paul's day were, were much less organized than that. They were much more primitive. Uh, they say this type of structure with pastors and deacons and bishops didn't exist in churches until the second century. So the pastorals couldn't have possibly been written by Paul who died in the first century. Well, there's two problems with this argument. First, there is plenty of evidence in the New Testament that local churches in Paul's day were organized and had pastors and deacons. Uh, The letter to the Philippians, which, by the way, everyone agrees was actually written by Paul in the first century, that letter is addressed not just to the congregation, but to the overseers and deacons. And even more importantly than that, if you look at Acts 18 through 20, which records the early days of the church at Ephesus, the church where Timothy is stationed, Paul addresses the elders of the church at that time. Second, there is not enough evidence to conclude that Timothy and Titus were bishops in any uh, formal sense, like would develop in the later centuries of the church. Paul was clearly in the biblical office of apostle. The churches clearly had men serving in the biblical offices of elder and, and deacon. But nothing in scripture indicates that Timothy and Titus were functioning in any sort of formal office that was meant to be continued. The most we can say is that they were associates of Paul operating as an extension of his ministry as an apostle. Uh, and so this, this argument about the structure and leadership of the churches, again, just does not hold up. The third reason people doubt that Paul wrote the pastorals has to do with the doctrine in the pastoral epistles. So in the pastorals, Paul describes Christian doctrine as, as if it were a, a settled body of teaching. He, he uses this phrase over and over, the faith. Uh, he uses terms like the teaching, sound doctrine, the deposit entrusted to Timothy. But those who deny Paul's authorship claim that in Paul's day, Christian doctrine was really more like wet cement. And there wasn't really a a settled body of teaching until long after the time of Paul's death. And then second, those who deny Paul's authorship also claim that the doctrine of the pastorals is different from the doctrine of the letters that everybody agrees that Paul wrote. They claim that the on the one hand, the doctrines that Paul always talks about are missing from the pastorals. And then they also observe that the pastorals address topics that Paul doesn't address elsewhere. And so they say, well, these letters don't sound like Paul. Well, these arguments, too, fall apart under closer examination. The New Testament contains multiple early references to Christian doctrine as a settled body of teaching. This is not just the pastorals. For example, in Galatians and 1 Corinthians, which again, everybody agrees that Paul wrote in the first century, Paul uses that same term, the faith, to describe Christian teaching. 
And then on the second point, that when compared to Paul's other letters, the pastorals are just not as different as it is claimed. If you look at the rest of Paul's letters, there is no subject that he addresses in every single one. It's just unreasonable to suggest that, well, if the letter doesn't mention blank, it must not be written by Paul. And while Paul does address subjects in the pastorals that he doesn't address in his other writings, it is, again, just unreasonable to suggest that a writer couldn't possibly do that, that a writer somehow is not allowed to write about subjects that he hasn't written about before. That's a standard, frankly, that the scholars who deny Paul's authorship would never want applied to their own writings. Uh, Just this last week, I listened to an interview with an author uh, who had written many books on the topic of the canon of Scripture. He had only ever published books on that subject. And at the, end, at the, the time of the interview, though, he had just published a new book on a totally different subject, uh, the subject of pastoral abuse. And uh, he, he mentioned that a lot of people were surprised uh, that he would write uh, on this subject matter because it was just so different than everything that he had published. And so certainly it might be unexpected or, or, or whatnot, but I want you to imagine how ludicrous it would have been if the interviewer responded to him and said, well, now, obviously, you couldn't have written this book because it's about a subject that you've never written about before. So again, these arguments are just unreasonable, and the doctrinal argument doesn't work. Finally, uh, the fourth reason people doubt that Paul wrote the pastorals has to do with the language used within these letters. So Schleiermacher and those who came after him, studied the Greek of the letters that everyone agrees that Paul wrote. And then they studied the Greek of the pastoral epistles, and they concluded that the grammar and the vocabulary and the writing style of the pastorals are so different from Paul's other letters, they couldn't possibly have been written by the same author. Well, this argument is problematic for a number of reasons. First, in the pastorals, Paul is writing to individuals, individuals who were his close companions and colleagues. In his other letters, he was writing to churches, congregations, and in some cases, these were people that he hadn't even met in person before. And it's common for the same author to speak slightly differently to different types of audiences. Uh, Second, Paul wrote the pastorals later in life, and it's not uncommon for a writer's vocabulary and style to evolve over time. But third, and I think most significantly, we have to understand that the early church never questioned if Paul wrote the pastoral epistles. And, And mind you, these were people, readers, who were immersed in a culture in which everything was written in Greek. They knew Greek, the the Greek that's used in the Bible, like you and I know English. So whatever, you know, whatever differences may exist between the pastorals and Paul's other writings, none of those differences ever made those early readers think that, oh, these pastorals are so different, they couldn't possibly have been written by Paul. They were perfectly comfortable with the fact that Paul wrote these letters as well as the others. And so really it comes down to whose knowledge of Greek are you going to trust? The Christians of the first and second and third centuries who lived in a culture immersed in the Greek of the New Testament? Or a German guy who came along in the 19th century? 
At the end of the day, none of the arguments against Paul being the author of 1 Timothy and the other pastoral epistles hold water. So then, why do so many people still maintain that Paul didn't write the pastoral epistles? Or what you really may be asking is, if these claims are so weak, why would I spend so much time talking about them and arguing against them? So here's the reason why I believe this is so important. Here's the reason why I believe so many still deny Paul's authorship. And here's the reason why I thought it would be important for you to hear a full defense of Paul's authorship. If you can deny the authorship of Scripture, you can deny the authority of Scripture. If you can deny the authorship of Scripture, you can deny the authority of Scripture. And if you can deny the authority of Scripture, you don't have to listen to it. You don't have to believe that what this says is true. And you do not have to obey what it tells you to do. If Paul is not the author of 1 Timothy, the whole letter falls apart. Because Paul is not just a name tacked on to the beginning of a document to give it credibility. Paul's personal life and his authority as an apostle are central to this message of 1 Timothy. Just look down at 1 Timothy 1 verses 12 through 16. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me... As the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul makes his personal testimony the basis for this message to 1 Timothy. And furthermore, throughout this letter, Paul exhorts Timothy from his own authority as an apostle. Throughout, he says, I urge, I desire, I do not permit. I charge you. This letter of 1 Timothy is only worth listening to because it was written with the authority of the Apostle Paul. Just a few weeks ago, I saw a TikTok video of a liberal New Testament scholar talking about 1 Timothy. And by the way, parents... You need to hear something. When I was growing up, Christian parents were really concerned about those liberal college professors uh, who might cause their children to question their faith. You just need to understand that today, those liberal professors who want 
your kids to question their faith are not just sitting in classrooms on university campuses waiting for your children to come to them. They are in your kids' pockets on their phones right now. The video I saw was of a liberal scholar who has quite a large following on TikTok, and he was addressing in this video the question of whether or not women may serve as pastors. He pointed out that the only verse in the New Testament that explicitly forbids women from serving as pastors is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And the very first point that he made to argue for women pastors was that Paul most definitely did not write 1 Timothy. He said that 1 Timothy was written years after Paul's death, and since 1 Timothy was not written by the Apostle Paul, you know, it's an interesting artifact of history, but we really shouldn't consider it to be authoritative like the actual writings of Paul. Again, if you can deny the authorship of Scripture, you can deny the authority of Scripture. If the Apostle Paul did not write 1 Timothy, then you do not have to listen to what it has to say. So, let's get back to our text for this morning. Because I think it is very important to consider the arguments of critics and to show that they're not reasonable. I, I think it's important to establish that this letter truly was written by Paul. But when it comes to the authorship of 1 Timothy, what is most important is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.1. Look at it again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. We must listen to the message of 1 Timothy because Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior, the God who created the world, the God against whom mankind rebelled, the God who authored a plan to reconcile rebels to himself, the God who loved the world by giving his Son so that we who believe would not perish but have eternal life. God, our Savior commanded that Paul would be an apostle, and that apostle wrote this book. We must listen to the message of 1 Timothy because Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of Christ Jesus, our hope, the eternal Son of God, the promised Messiah who took on human flesh, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a sinless life, who died in our place, who was raised from the dead, who ascended to heaven, who is going to return and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords over a new creation for all of eternity. Christ Jesus, our hope, commanded that Paul would be his apostle. And that apostle wrote this book. The authority of 1 Timothy is not ultimately the authority of Paul. The authority of 1 Timothy is the authority of God. So again, I come back to the main thing I want to persuade you to do. Receive the message that God wants to give you. Because the message of 1 Timothy is a message by God's authority. 
And let me just give you a sample of what this message is that hinges on God's authority. Look at 1 Timothy 1.15 again. We read it earlier, but look at it again. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You need to believe You need to understand that you are a sinner. That you have broken God's law. That you deserve God's wrath. And you need to know that Christ Jesus came into the world to save people like you and me. You can be saved from God's wrath. You can be saved from sin's power. This saying is trustworthy. It's deserving of full acceptance. You can trust this good news. You can accept this good news. And you don't have to take the word of a mere man. You don't have to take the word of church tradition. And thankfully, you don't have to take my word for it today. You can have certainty that you can be saved from your sins because the promise of salvation comes from the very authority of God. Let me give you one more example. Flip over to 1 Timothy 4, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes this. 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The call to follow Jesus is a call to reorganize your entire life around Jesus. It's a call to live counterculturally. It's a call to give up the pleasures of this life. It's a call not to store up treasures on this earth. It is a call to make a major sacrifice. And if it is not true that following Jesus has value for the life to come, that sacrifice is not worth it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But you can stake your life on the fact that godliness holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You do not have to give up your life based merely on the word of a man posing as Paul. You don't have to give up your life based merely on church tradition. You don't have to give up your life based on my word today. You can be confident that surrendering your life to Jesus is worth it based on the authority of God. Receive the message that God wants to give to you because the message 
of 1 Timothy is a message by God's authority. We made it through one verse. We will look at two more attributes of the message of 1 Timothy in verse 2 next week. But I hope that today you have seen if we don't get this first verse right, none of the other verses matter. As we conclude, you need to ask yourself an important question. The question that you need to answer is not just, did Paul really write 1 Timothy? The question that you need to answer is not even just, does this message come by God's authority? Ultimately, the question that you need to answer is, will you listen to this message? Will you listen to what God wants to say to you in 1 Timothy? Will you receive the message that God wants to give you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this book. Not because it's an interesting artifact of history, but because you have written words by your very authority that we can take to the bank, that we can stake our lives on, that we can stake our eternal life on. Lord, I thank you that your word is reliable and trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And Lord, I thank you that our salvation is secure because your promise is secure. I thank you that the Christian life is worth it because you are a God whose word we can trust and accept. And so Lord, I, I pray that my brothers and sisters today would see not only why it's so important that this book really does come from you with your authority, but Lord, I, I pray that they would receive it. Lord, that you would bolster their faith. That they would stand today more secure than ever in the fact that you really do save sinners. But I pray that they would be as confident as ever that giving up everything to follow Jesus really is worth it. Lord, because you have called us to these things, you have told us these things by your authority. Lord, give us confidence in your word. Give us conviction about your word. And Lord, give us grace then to submit to your word and to change and to humble ourselves under your word that we might be conformed more into the image of Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.